Tonight we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Katie Gibbs, who will be giving a talk titled, No Science, No Evidence, No Truth, No Democracy. My name is Dave McCaffrey. I'm the coordinator at uh, Elkhart here on campus. Tonight's uh, event is hosted in part by SACFA, the Parkland Institute, Elkhart, the University of Lethbridge Student Union, and the University of Lethbridge. Uh, a reminder that this evening's talk will be audio recorded. And uh, if you please turn off your cell phones, it would be appreciated. So the talk will be about 40 minutes or so, and we'll have a question and answer period afterwards. Uh, and a little backgrounder on our presenter tonight. Dr. Katie Gibbs is a scientist, communicator, and organizer who is passionate about the intersection of science and policy. Katie recently finished her PhD in biology at the University of Ottawa, studying broad-scale threats to endangered species and the effectiveness of conservation measures. In the summer of 2012, she was one of the lead organizers of the Death of Evidence Rally that was one of the largest science demonstrations in Canadian history. After graduating, she combined her science knowledge with her diverse background, organizing and managing various causes and campaigns to become the co-founder and the executive director of Evidence for Democracy, a new organization that advocates for the use of evidence in government decision-making, and public policy development. Please join me tonight in welcoming Dr. Katie Gibb. Well, thank you, Dave, for that great introduction. Um, thanks to all of those groups that you mentioned for bringing me out to Lethbridge. Uh, I will admit, though, I was a little naive on the geography when I said yes to come here from Edmonton. I think in my mind it was only an hour or two away. <laughs> and so I was like, oh sure, I'm already out there, why not? And then realized it was a little further than that. But regardless, I'm glad I came and had a nice day today sort of seeing the sights. And it's, it's really gorgeous around here. So I, I'm, I'm glad that I got a chance to see it. Um, also, so we have two Twitter accounts. So that's my Twitter handle, Katie Gibbs, and our organizations. E for DCA, so if any of you feel like tweeting while I talk, please go for it. So I'm going to start by talking a little bit about the links between science and evidence and democracy. Then I'll get into a little bit about what is the state of science and evidence in Canada today. And then I'll talk a little bit about how some of the attacks on science have led to scientists speaking out and a bit about what this movement has looked like. So I think, you know, I don't think it's necessarily intuitive for a lot of us to think of science and evidence as being integral, as being integral to democracy. Um, so the first line here, the title of my talk is, no science, no evidence, no truth, no democracy. That was actually the chant from the Death of Evidence rally. And it's short and simple, but I feel like it brilliantly sort of summarizes this first point I'm trying to make. Um, that, you know, science and collecting and analyzing evidence are really the best way we have for knowing what's true. They're not perfect, but they really are the best way we have for, for knowing what's true, for generating new knowledge. And when we lose that, we lose the ability to be able to distinguish true facts versus propaganda. And without the ability to distinguish between those two things, we can't really have a functioning democracy. Because of course, a functioning democracy requires having informed citizens who know all the facts and are able to make decisions. Um, and having transparent and accountable 
um, governments really demands that when they make decisions, they present the justification for the, the decisions that they made. So I sort of see facts as a, as a check on political power. So there's an article by Carol Linnett in Academic Matters that you know, really brilliantly summarizes this point that I'm trying to make. So instead of trying to put it in my own words, I just stole her quotes here. In the absence of rigorous scientific information and an informed public, decision-making becomes an exercise in upholding the preferences of those in power. And when we limit the production of scientific evidence, it creates a knowledge vacuum that inflates the political, that inflates the power of political influence. If politicians can't point to facts in defense of their arguments, then there is little left but ideology to rely upon. <laughs> Great quote. Um, and this is another one that I really love from Francesca Griffo. So Francesca up until very recently worked for the Union of Concerned Scientists in the U.S. as the head of their Center for Science and Democracy. And she said, science breeds the free thinking and openness to ideas that lie at the heart of a democratic society. So really the point of these slides is just to try to convince you that when I see an attack on science, to me that is also an attack on our democracy. And I think, you know, a lot of us think of a free and open media as something that is crucial for our democracy. And I think we need to also um, start including a transparent, strong public science as also something that we consider to be the foundation of a healthy democracy. So how is science and um, evidence in our democracy doing in Canada today? Well, I'm going to argue not very good. So there's really sort of three streams of things that I've seen happen in the last few years that I'm going to give you some examples of. So the first is a reduction in the communication of science and evidence to the public. The second is the erosion of our capacity to actually do science and collect data and create evidence, as well as a diminished role of evidence in public policy decisions. So I'll start by giving some examples of concerns about how science and evidence communication to the public has been limited. So this really started back in 2007. We started to see the internal communication policies for government scientists being changed. Um, then we started hearing persistent reports of journalists not being able to talk to government scientists and then being directed to communication staff instead. And I've had the ability to talk to a number of our really long-term science journalists. And, you know, they've, they've told me their stories. And most of these people have been doing these jobs for, you know, 20 years or so. And they've been calling up the same government scientists, you know, year after year when they have a story. So they know them by name. They have them in their phone. They just call them up and say, hey, can I ask you a few questions, blah, blah, blah. They've been doing this for years. And then... All of a sudden, when these new communication policies came in, the same contact that they've been calling year after year had to say, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. You have to put your request through to the communications team. So there really was a clear, distinct shift in, in the communication policies. And then the last point here is a bit more subtle, but I think possibly even more alarming. But we've seen changes to the policies around how government scientists can attend conferences and how they can actually publish their papers. 
So this is a quote from the new Environment Canada communication policy that came into place in 2008. So it starts with, just as we have one department, we should have one voice. So this was the, the communications policy that really made it clear that absolutely any request to government scientists from journalists had to go to the communications team. The scientists couldn't answer these requests on their own. And so what we've seen is, is not really just you know, a clear-cut muzzling. It's not that they say flat out that the scientists you know, absolutely can't do interviews. But what often happens is the journalists are working on a really tight deadline. Usually they need an interview that day or the next day at the latest. And so what happens is they have to put their request through to the communications team. And then you know, often they, sometimes they never hear back. Sometimes they hear back a week later after the, their article has already gone to press. Um, sometimes what happens is they're told that they have to submit their questions in writing, and then they get back a sort of approved response to their questions from the scientists, um, but aren't actually able to just talk to the scientists on the phone. Occasionally, if they do manage to get a scientist on the phone, there will often be a communications person on the line as well who is there sort of ready to jump in if the scientist says anything out of bounds. So then we heard a few really clear-cut examples of where government scientists had been muzzled. So the first one here is Christy Miller, who had done some really great work on salmon that had been published in Science. There's an example here of um, a scientist doing work on ozone layers, and then Scott Dalmore, who had did who had done work on a 13,000-year-old flood. So these weren't really very controversial topics. Um, in each of these cases, these government scientists had published their work in peer-reviewed journals. In all of these cases, it was the top journals, Science and Nature, which are you know, the, the top of the you know, academic journals that there are. So of course, you know, Canadian scientists doing amazing work, so the Canadian science journalists wanted to interview them and write about their work. And in all of these cases, they were not permitted to speak to the media. And then you know, after the fact, those journalists then submitted access to information requests and discovered these huge paper trails of you know, the communications people debating whether or not these scientists could do the interviews. And in some of the cases, it actually went as high up as the Privy Council office. So you know, the, the PMO's team is discussing whether or not Christy Miller can do an interview on the research that she just published in Science. It just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So people started to speak out about this as early back as 2010. A group, the Canadian Science Writers Association, they submitted a letter to Stephen Harper, you know, asking him to free Canadian scientists, and this got quite a bit of attention around the world. This is an article about it in Nature. Um, so unfortunately, that sort of outcries from those groups didn't really lead to any changes, and we've still seen things continue to get worse. So DFO put through some new procedures around publications um, just earlier this year. So it used to be that their internal their not their internal communication policy, their, their internal policies around um, how their scientists could publish papers, it used to only apply when the DFO scientist was the lead author on a study. Um, Whereas they changed it so that it applies if a DFO scientist is any author on a study. So even if a study is led by an academic scientist, 
and you know there might be five scientists on that paper, and one of them happens to be a DFO scientist, that still means that this paper, if they want to publish it, it has to go through the internal DFO rules and be approved by the DFO managers. So there's a lot of concern that this is going to result in academic scientists not wanting to collaborate with DFO scientists because they worry that they might not be able to get their paper published in the end. They also added a new rule where so often when you, when you put your paper through for publication, it gets peer-reviewed, and then it gets accepted, then you, you know, get the final paperwork from the journal, and you sort of sign off on it, on the copyright information and all that. And so that used to be the DFO scientist who would sign off on that, that final paperwork. And now that has been changed, so it's a DFO manager who makes that final sign-off. So one, it's a little weird to have somebody who didn't do the research being the person who does the final sign-off, but also there are concerns there that this could be used as an additional way to stop that paper from getting out if it's you know, unpalatable for whatever reason. So a little bit of good news. Um, in, in earlier this year, a group submitted a request to the information commissioner essentially outlining that these new communication policies are actually illegal under the Access to Information Act and asked her to investigate. And she did say that, you know, there was at least enough of a case there that it warranted an investigation. So that is good. But just a few weeks ago, I saw this story come out that basically the information commissioner is so overwhelmed with complaints against Harper that she is saying that she doesn't have enough resources, so she can't actually complete all of the investigations that she needs to do. So not really holding my breath to, to hear back from that. So this has actually gotten a lot of international media attention, which I think really shows just how bad the situation is here. Just in September, this was in the, an editorial in the New York Times writing about how bad the situation is in Canada and how Canada is silencing our scientists. So they even compared it to the situation in the U.S. under George W. Bush and said that it's far worse here than it ever was under George W. Bush. And one of the lines in this that I think is really great is, this is more than an attack on academic freedom. It is an attempt to guarantee public ignorance. And I think that accurately describes what's going on. And then just about a month ago, PIPS, who is the union that represents government scientists, they did a survey of their members and found that 90% of the scientists who responded said that they felt that they could not speak freely to the public. So this really showed that it's more than just a few examples or a few anecdotes, that this really is happening across the board. It's really a systematic problem. So these are more uh, summaries of the results from that PIP survey, and this figure is actually from Nature. So again, this is getting international media attention. Um, so some of the interesting ones here are 86% um, of the scientists who responded said that they could not report actions that might harm the public without fear of being reprimanded. 50% um, had seen public health and safety compromised by political interference in science. 43% had been asked to exclude or alter information in government documents for non-scientific reasons. So these numbers are, are really pretty startling. 
So the second example I'll talk about is concerns about the erosion of our capacity to actually do science in Canada. So starting in about 2009, we started seeing drastically reduced funding for a lot of science and technology, um, both in terms of government science, but also in terms of how government funds academic science. And this has resulted to cuts to some really important scientific and evidence gathering institutions. So, you know, just a few very small examples here, the Experimental Lakes area, the Polar Environmental Atmospheric Research Laboratory, which you've probably heard to refer to as PEARL, uh, the Long Form Census, the National Roundtable, and the Environment and the Economy. And those are just a very few tiny examples. There's a long, long list there. And then what we've seen as well is the remaining pool of money that's there has actually been shifted almost completely away from funding basic and curiosity-driven research to only funding applied research, commercialization of research, and industry partnerships and things like that. So this is a figure summarizing funding changes to the tri-councils that fund academic science. So there's SHRC that funds a lot of social science, NSERC that funds science and engineering, and CIHR that does mostly health research. And you can see that since 2007 to 2012, we've seen a decrease across the board for those groups, um, about you know 7.5% overall with social sciences taking a bit more of a cut than the other ones. Uh, and just going back to this too, I don't have a slide summarizing it, but this doesn't even capture the cuts that we've seen to the science that is actually done by government. Um, there's been thousands of scientists lost at the federal government level. Uh, I keep meaning to actually include a slide about that, but you know this this doesn't even begin to capture the amount of loss that we've seen in terms of our scientific capacity. So the Experimental Lakes area is probably one that you're familiar with. I think this one probably got the public's attention the most, and it's really all thanks to Diane Orahel, who was recently featured in Nature. So Diane was a PhD student at the Experimental Lakes area when she heard that their funding got cut. And so most of the scientists at the ELA are DFO scientists, and so they were also told, at the same time they were told that they got their funding cut, they were also told that they were forbidden from speaking to the media. So partly because they didn't want those scientists then going out and you know, explaining how bad this cut was. But because she was a PhD student, she wasn't bound to those, you know, that requirement to be silenced. So she really, you know, she actually took a break from her studies and just became pretty much a full-time campaigner overnight to try to save the experimental lakes area. And part of the reason, you know, this one was so shocking is their operating budget was is really pretty tiny. I think it was about two million a year. And, you know, one, the government had just put in a bunch of money a few years before to invest in the ELA. In order to, you know, get rid of the ELA, it cost a huge amount of money because the ELA is a, is a whole bunch of little lakes in northern Ontario and Manitoba. And so in order to close it, they have to reclaim all of those lakes that have had experiments happening in them for years. So it cost a ton of money to actually close it up. So it really didn't make any sense that this was that this was being shut down. So thanks to Diane's, you know, campaigns and getting the public on board, um, it does look like the ELA might be saved. The province of Ontario has stepped up some money for it, 
I, I believe the Manitoba government put in some money for it too. Another group um, has agreed to sort of operate it. So there's still some hope there. It's not completely finalized because the government, the federal government is still sort of negotiating who is going to take over those final reclamation costs in the end. And they're, they're sort of um, being nitpicky about that. So we're still hoping that that will be at least one happy story in all of this. So then there's the example of the National Roundtable on the Environment and Economy. Um, for this example, in a rare moment of candor, John Baird actually said that he was cutting them because he didn't like the advice that they were giving. So I'm sure many of you were here from Muneer's talk, I believe last week, maybe the week before, um, where he outlined some really great evidence for why a carbon tax makes sense. So the, the round table on the environment and the economy, that's essentially what they did as well. They put forward some research suggesting that a carbon tax would be a good way to reduce our carbon and that it would also be beneficial for the economy. But John Baird said, you know, we don't like that suggestion. We don't want to do a carbon tax. Why should we be paying for a group to tell us to do something that we know we don't want to do? And cut their funding. And they have since closed down. So for the remaining funding that we've seen shift almost completely away from basic research, you know, this really hasn't even been stealthy or subtle. It's been very, you know, they've been very clear about this. So they've shifted the National Research Council. Um, it has been refocused to serve business. Uh, and one of these quotes is really great from Gary Goodyear, who is our former Minister of State for Science and Technology. He said that he envisions the National Research Council becoming a concierge service that offers a single phone number to connect businesses to all of their research and development needs. Uh, so that's a little funny. And then we have a quote from John McDougall, who is the current president of the National Research Council, who said that scientific discovery is not valuable unless it has commercial value. So and again, even this news of us completely, you know, taking our National Research Council, shifting it completely away from basic research to commercialization has also been making international news. So, you know, it really does highlight that what is happening in Canada is really quite different from what's happening in other countries. And the international community is shocked at what's going on here. They're really, I mean, it's, it's constantly getting international attention because the international community just can't believe the way things are going in Canada. So the third example concerns over diminished role of evidence in public policy decisions. Again, Munir outlined some great examples of that. Um, so we have seen sort of a growing list of examples where there's been a policy decision that just is completely inconsistent with the available evidence. We've also seen, we've also seen a growing list of decisions being made to completely abandon the collection of evidence based on very weak rationale, for example, the long-form census. And we've also seen a bunch of changes to um, legislation that really reduces the role of evidence and instead gives more uh, power to the minister and ministerial discretion to just make the decisions on their own. <coughs> so, this is the example of Insight. So you've probably heard of the Insight Clinic in Vancouver. There's a lot of evidence that shows that it's really great for 
reducing our healthcare costs and, and saving lives. Um, but Harper has made it very clear that you know this sort of doesn't jive with their ideology and has been actually trying to get the Insight Clinic in Vancouver closed. Thankfully, they haven't been successful at getting Insight closed in Vancouver, but I'm pretty sure they have put in place new laws federally that make it almost impossible for any other cities to open an Insight Clinic now. Um, and I know in Ottawa right now, there's a group of doctors that are trying really hard to get a similar clinic opened in Ottawa, and uh, it doesn't look like they're going to be able to do that. Another great example of a policy decision that goes against what all the evidence suggests is the mandatory minimum sentencing for crimes. So, you know, that might, it's one of those things that might seem like it makes sense. You know, it seems a little bit intuitive. Um, but when you actually look at the research and look at what has happened in other jurisdictions that have implemented this, um, you find time and time again that it doesn't actually reduce crime rates. Um, it's just all, really all you're doing is spending a whole lot of money to put people in jail, and it doesn't actually do anything to reduce crime rates. So much so that even Texas conservatives were like, what are you guys doing? We tried that here. It didn't work. Even we we're moving away from the system. It was so bad. Um, but you know, this is one of the examples of what they call decision-based evidence-making. So you know, the government had a policy that was very much in line with their agenda. So they said, this is what we're going to do. And you know, I've talked to some people about this and really did get the impression that at the time, they did think that this would work, and then they asked the public service, you know, okay, go find us some evidence to back up this policy position that we just stated. And then, you know, the public service does some research, it comes back and says, well, we, we can't find any evidence of that. But of course, they've already announced it, and so they go ahead with it, um, even though there's absolutely no evidence to back it up. Then, of course, there is the example of the long-form census. I won't talk about it in too much detail, since many of you were here from the nearest talk, but, um, you know, I think that's a really great example of where, you know, so many groups spoke out, it didn't make any sense. The new, the new census actually, or the new survey, actually costs more than the previous one did, and we've actually seen the first round of data come out from it, and the data are crap. Um, most groups are just not even using it. I've talked to a lot of groups who said they're just trying to find other sources of, statist of statistics to use because it's just, it's not even usable. So the other examples we've seen are, um, these are a few examples of where we've seen actual changes to legislation. So the first one is um, changes to the Fisheries Act that were in the first omnibus budget bill, C-38, that really changed the way fish habitat was protected. The second really big one also in the first budget bill was changes to the Environmental Assessment Act. So the budget bill actually completely got rid of our old Environmental Assessment Act. The whole thing, they just canceled it and put in a new Environmental Assessment Act. And this one really reduces the number of environmental uh, assessments that are necessary and only gives a list of specific projects that require an assessment. And this actually, there was I think about 3,000 environmental assessments that were in the way of, that were, under, that were underway 
across the country that were just stopped and eliminated. Um, so, you know, those are cases where we were going to do an assessment and then based on, you know, assessing what the environmental damage of a project would be, decide if we were going to proceed based on that, and now we're just not even doing the assessment. So this um, has led to scientists uh, starting to speak out. So this is a picture of the Death of Evidence rally that we held in Ottawa in 2012. So this was this was mostly in response, I would say, to, to that omnibus budget bill. It had, you know, a whole bunch of changes to legislation, cuts to funding in it, and also the funding cuts to the Experimental Lakes area had happened just before this. So this was really all in May of 2012. So I was actually a PhD student at the University of Ottawa at the time, and, you know, it was kind of funny because during my time there doing my thesis, I think I was sort of more the rabble-rouser on the floor, you know, often going to protests, coming back to the lab, carrying my protest signs. Uh, meanwhile, most of the other professors certainly were, you know, a little bit more reserved and conservative. So what was really great about this is, you know, it was actually the professors on my floor who came into the lab one day and said, hey, we're going to the pub to talk about organizing something, you should come. So I think that's really the only good news story out of this is that I feel like the scientific community has really started to realize that if they don't speak out for science and the important role of science, then nobody else is going to. So, you know, they've, at least at UOttawa, I've experienced that they, they really did sort of wake up. So, you know, when we organized this rally, we were expecting, you know, maybe one to two hundred people. I had actually done an interview a few days before the rally where I had estimated that we might get one to 500 people. And my co-organizers, you know, sent me an email afterwards saying, you shouldn't have estimated that many people. You know, we're not going to get 500 people and we're going to look silly. Um, but we ended up getting, the estimates were between two and 5,000 people. So, you know, it really showed that there, um, it really hit a nerve with people. And I think that it did because I think it was really the first time that we took these, you know, all of these different events and really sort of weave them together under this narrative of the Death of Evidence rally instead of it just being, you know, a budget cut here, a case of muzzled scientists here, it really sort of put them all under, under one narrative. So the rally got a ton of national and international media attention. Again, it was covered in Nature, and I think this, this quote is really excellent. Governments come and go, but scientific expertise and experience cannot be chopped and changed as the mood suits and still be expected to function, nor can applied research thrive when basic research is struggling. If the Harper government has a valid strategic reason to undermine vital sectors of Canadian science, then it should say so. And we are still waiting to hear what that rationale is. So after the rally, we heard from a lot of people asking us, you know, that rally was excellent, so what's next? So we ended up starting a new organization called Evidence for Democracy. So we're a science-led, national, non-partisan organization advocating for science and evidence-based policy in Canada. So this is our kind of big blue sky vision. We want to see strong policies that are built on the best evidence for the benefit of all Canadians. 
we see a thriving democracy where citizens are informed and engaged and all levels of government are transparent and accountable, as well as a national culture that values science and evidence and the important role they play in our society. So this is certainly the long, long-term goal, but it's kind of what we're working towards. So we sort of see what we do is a combination of think tank and advocacy groups. So we plan on doing some of our own research, but then also taking that research and actually doing the advocacy around it. So part of what we want to do is actually just monitor these issues. Because you know things like evidence-based decision making, the government changes to communication policies, these are things that we're not really monitoring. So it's easy for us to say that things have gotten so much worse, but we don't really have a lot of evidence to, to show that it's gotten worse. So, you know, for example, one of the things we're doing is actually doing a report card to assess the government communication policies for government scientists. And this is something sort of we're stealing from the toolbook of the Union of Concerned Scientists in the U.S. because they started doing that a number of years ago. And what's great about that is then you can redo it, you know, every few years with subsequent governments. So you can actually start to measure, you know, how the communications policy is changing and whether it's getting more transparent or less. Um, so then we're also trying to, you know, use this research that we do to educate Canadians about, you know, why science and evidence matter in government decision making. And then, and then again, actually do that next step of taking action on specific issues, whether that be organizing rallies or petitions and that kind of thing. So we hope to foster constructive skepticism in Canada. And I know that word sort of has a, you know, it's sort of been tainted, I think, by climate skeptics, but really what that means is we want people to, you know, actually evaluate claims that they hear. So when the government says, this is the new policy we're putting in place, we want people to actually, you know, ask, well, what is the evidence that that's actually going to do what you say it's going to do? We also want to ensure that the governments invest appropriately in public interest science and ensure that evidence isn't misrepresented in the public space. So one of the first things that we did after actually forming a new organization was we did a campaign called Science Uncensored. So this one is specifically focused on the issue of government scientists being muzzled. Um, so there's a lot of information there. Um, there's a timeline that sort of outlines all the different instances. Because I think part of the problem with these issues is that each specific instance isn't that bad. It's only really when you put them all together and look at them one after another in context that it becomes so alarming. And there's also a petition there that people can sign to send a, a letter to their MPs letting them know that they want a new open communication policy. And then in September, we did stand up for science rallies across the country. And there was one here in Lethbridge as well. Um, so this was great. We you know, were a fairly new organization with almost zero resources. So we had only expected to have maybe four or five rallies happen across the country. And then people just kept phoning us and saying, you know, hey, add my city to the list. I'm going to organize an event as well. So we ended up having 18 events across the country, which was great. And again, this ended up getting a lot of media attention, which I think is really great. So here's a few things that we're working on next. One of the things we're doing is putting together a network of experts. So trying to get people to sign up who have expertise in different areas, 
both you know, natural science as well as social science to help us monitor their field, so to sort of be our eyes and ears and alert us to cuts in their areas uh, where d government decisions are being made that aren't in line with the evidence. As well, we get a lot of media requests for scientists. And it's really funny because often the media will phone you up and say, hey, I need a scientist for the news tonight. And you're kind of like, well, can you be a little bit more specific? Like, what area of expertise are you looking for? So, you know, I think that's part of the problem is the media just sees scientists. So we're hoping to be able to, you know, help get them in touch with the right person who is actually the expert that they're looking for. Uh, we're also hoping to put together sort of an online campaign website that is going to have information on all of the cuts that we've seen and sort of a little write-up on each one describing the cut, what has been lost, and really linking it back to what that means for the average person. You know, what does losing this lab mean to them? And then lastly, the sort of more high-minded policy thing that we're working on is trying to facilitate working with a bunch of other groups that are working on these issues to try to develop what we're calling a science charter. So basically just you know, outlining uh, the, the actual policies that we want to see that would improve science and evidence-based decision-making in Canada, and then use this sort of as a tool during the next election to get candidates and party leaders to sign on to it um, as sort of a way to put pressure on governments and hopefully make these science issues an election issue in the next federal election. So again, we're a brand new organization, so we absolutely need your help. So you can join our mailing list, you can join our network of experts, you can volunteer with us. We're also looking for groups to partner with us. So for example, at SFU, there's a professor there who's a supporter of ours, and he went to his department and got a research assistant position for us, basically. So we're going to have a research assistant there next semester who's actually going to be doing that report card research on the different communication policies of the different departments. So that's a great way to help as well. And of course, as with everybody doing work like this, uh, funding is probably our limiting resource. So we absolutely welcome um, donors as well. So you can do all of those things that I mentioned on our website, evidenceprodemocracy.ca. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and I also welcome you to contact me if you have any questions, feedback, or ideas, or anything like that. And that is it for me. Well, thank you, Dr. Gibbs, for that fantastic talk. Uh, I think we're going to open